Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Pratt Library. My name is Reginald Harris, and um, I am currently at Poets House in New York City, um, although I was here in Baltimore and here at the Pratt Library for so long, I feel like, you notice I said currently, as if I'm just sort of <laughs> temporarily working in New York, uh, you know, but um, as everybody here at Pratt knows, I'm really still here, uh, thanks to Judy Cooper uh, and everyone, uh, so welcome. It is always a, a real thrill to have this family reunion of poets associated with the Kaveh Kanem, um African American Writers Workshop here. Um, it is... Um, this is the seventh time we've gotten together on the first Sunday in December, weeding our way through the book uh, sale and trying not to kid buy boxes. Um, let me remind you, speaking of the book sale, that the books in this room are for sale on the table and um, they're... Not and not for a dollar, and so don't even think about bringing a box in here. Forget it. It's like that's not that's not going to work. Um, <laughs> this is part of the uh, amazing series of programs and events that the library does. You can pick up your lovely compass at the door, uh, and there are also some flyers of other programs and things that are going on here. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention to all of us poetry lovers here that the Pratt has its own poetry contest. Um, there are rules and the entries must be received by February 8, 2013, and there'll be publication both in the window downstairs, one of those large windows, and in the little Patuxent Review, which is a wonderful journal here uh, in Maryland. So if you're a poet, pick up one of these and please submit. Um, Kavi Kanem uh, was founded and that this one thing has changed is that I suddenly need reading glasses. I was the last member of my family. I was resisted as long as I possibly could. Uh, was founded in 1996 by Tor Derricotte and Cornelius Eady uh, as a home for the many voices of African-American poetry. Um, it is a week-long retreat um, currently in, uh, outside of Pittsburgh. And um, what happens is that you have to get up and write a poem every day for a week. Um, it is not as, <laughs> and you just see people nodding as going, yeah, 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 right. Um, how in the world am I going to do that? But the community that there that is there is just so amazing and so supportive and so wonderful of your work that it gets a little bit better as the week goes on. And then by the end of the week, it's sort of like, you, well, first of all, you feel like you've been there for a month. But secondly, you realize that you have been, in a sense, initiated into, as I said, a family, a real group of poets that uh, inspire each other, that help each other out, that uh, sometimes squabble, just like a family does. Um, and But we are together. Um, we don't have, as you will hear, um, this evening, there isn't an overriding, I guess, ethic or theme, or everybody doesn't write like everybody else, which is one of the great things. Uh, what Kavi Khanum tries to do is to get you to write you as best as you possibly can. Um, they are currently, um, the applications are now open for next summer's uh, workshop at uh, kavikhanumpoets.org. That's kavikhanumpoets.org. Uh, and so please consider applying and um, if you don't get in the first time don't worry keep applying because you realize that 
pretty much every black poet in the country is writing <laughs> at this point. Part of the reason why, in addition to the community there, is that you get to work with some amazing faculty members like tonight, this afternoon's guest, Kwame Dawes, and you'll hear how amazing he is, both as a person and as a poet, a little bit later. But for now, I want to uh, bring up our fellows, our locals, um, a couple of people cannot uh, attend, uh, unfortunately, um, and so I'll be reading a poem by one. And uh, someone who was supposed to be here, if everyone is amenable, I'd like to dedicate um, the reading this afternoon to Brandon D. Johnson. Brandon Johnson, who is one of the tallest poets in Washington, um, uh, was supposed to be here, but unfortunately his mother is ill and he had to return home to Indiana. So, Brandon, we are thinking of you and your family at this time. Um, we will be reading in sort of vaguely uh, alphabetical order, so we're going to start with Raina Fields, Nikki Hurd, um, Bettina Judd, and Katima Lee. I knew I was going to do that at one point. I knew it. Um, and where Brandon was supposed to read, I will be coming up to, to read uh, for uh, another person who can't make it, Mahogany Brown, and maybe one or two things of my own. So shall we start, please, with Raina? Um, so I have to admit, I kind of cheated to be here. Um, I actually don't live in Baltimore, so I'm sorry for those of you who um, might call me out for that. Um, but I did go to school in Baltimore. Um, I attended Loyola University in Maryland, um, and I graduated in 2008. Um, so Baltimore is very dear to my heart, and I always enjoy coming back. Um, right now I am based out of Richmond, so if you guys are ever in Richmond, come by and say hello. Um, all right, in any case, um, I'm going to be reading a few poems from um, a manuscript of uh, poetry that I've put together and I'm working diligently on trying to get published. Um, the title of the collection is called Last Rites for Uptown. Um, if we have any, any folks from Philly in the room... No? Okay. Well, that's all right. Um, but uh, Uptown is an area in Philadelphia um, where I'm from, so this, is, this um, collection is sort of dedicated to that particular area and the folks from that area. Um, I'm going to start with a poem called Dear Mother in Okinawa. Um, just as some background, my grandparents were in the military, and my... Um, my mother and uh, my aunts uh, grew up in Okinawa um, in the early 60s. So this poem is dedicated to my mother. Dear Mother in Okinawa, they stabbed your body with questions of how you came to be, of how, like dough, you curled and brown in a pan of oil to get your color. Bright, wide eyes like saucers, Puffy bangs flopping over your forehead when you walk down Okinawa's narrow streets, patent leather shoes scuffing and clicking in rhythm. A man would ask your mother, what happened to her tail? Gesturing to the back of your dress, wondering if it were removed surgically at birth, like a sixth toe or an extra sheath of skin, or if it fell off on its own. Perhaps he thought it was all done in ceremony among elders cloaked in the bursting patterns of a tribe. He had not learned as you did 
that curiosity voiced so carelessly is a sin that no one sheds skin and becomes human. Okay, this next poem is called Love a Definition. Um, And like a definition in a dictionary, um, there are some numbers in here. So, you know, often you'll see alternate meanings for words in the dictionary for particular words. So when you hear the numbers, that's basically what that is gesturing towards. Love a Definition. The two-story house, the vinyl siding, color somewhere between beige and yellow, like mid-morning awakening by the sun, a delicate misfit. Fear, noun, one, growl of the water heater, two, dusty corners, three, years of settled skin and bone, four, temptress of memory, basement corners I still haven't seen as an adult. Praise the Lord for the electric company's slow response to late bills. Praise the Lord for this loneliness that is only filled when we don coats on top of coats, bodies stiff against the din of the TV's basic channels. Love, noun. One, winter gnaws at the house's cracks. Wind sneaks through the old windows, constantly off the warp track. But this is warmth. Praise the Lord for your pale hands, shaky script, the blue ballpoint pen against loose leaf. You sign your name, the P drawn curly Q goodbye, this your will in my mathematics notebook. Praise the Lord for this definition of love, neither free nor easy, this empty warmth, the heavy silence in the corner corner of my room, my heart. Um, The next poem I'll read is entitled Heat. Winter afternoons, we walked to a brick building that didn't have an entry in the telephone book. Out back, a man filled our red plastic gas can with kerosene, as if from his own personal spring. I bustled my plaid uniform jumper and kicked my green nylon legs, pretending to be a can-can dancer. You walked out of the building and were real careful, holding the canister, no swinging, no spilling. Every drop was precious. When we got home, we huddled around the heater, still in our coats, shivering a little while it warmed up. Jim Gardner's voice a mumble in the background on the news, then watching Jeopardy, then Wheel of Fortune, rooting for the contestant with a little melanin who just couldn't seem to catch a break and solve the puzzle before the beep. All right, so I have three more. Um, This next one is entitled Slow Cooked. My grandmother warns me about microwaves. Don't stand in front of them. The watching my meal explode and burst for a few minutes is easy entertainment. She tells me to wait until it stops beeping before I take anything out. Each sound weeps radiation until it's safe. This advice is from the woman who knows the recipe for yellow cake, scrambled eggs, and catfish in the microwave. The woman who knows that three minutes for instant oatmeal means some soggy grains slithering over the side of the bowl. She cautions against dimpled fruit that has worn its time in its core, too many possibilities for bacteria or fungus, 
and warns against most deodorants and toothpaste, too much aluminum, too many additives. Those little pleasures, eating a bruised apple, watching a TV dinner spin, brushing too much teen spirit under the arms, what can the body take? Do we have any Catholics in the room? All right. Hello to the Catholics. All right. Um, I went to Catholic school for 17 years. Yes, it's a long time. Um, <laughs> so this poem is dedicated to that experience, um, and it's entitled Catechesis. The nuns felt it was fit that we know our history. Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, even as knucklehead Detroit Red, but rarely mention we too could be saints. Textbooks in stained glass windows showed us the usual tidy complexions, silken halos and heavy eyes. Each saint gripped his weapon of choice, an arrow, a staff, the word, but only a few myths told of those with our coloring, one who offered his modest gifts upon slave ships in Colombia, or the other who ran the snakes out of Ireland, saving that poor nation of rooty cheeks and green hillsides from those devious creatures. So I prayed to be your instrument, lit candles in my bedroom, ran my fingers over cold plastic rosary beads, memorized novenas and obscure prayers that I found in old missiles. Pray, make me good, Lord. My classmates picked confirmation names that could be worn without question, Monica, Teresa, Angela, but I, Bernadette, needed to be the flower of your eye, the reason you still hope for the world. Prayed bliss, prayed mercy, prayed peace, prayed beauty, prayed selfishly for my uniform to be filled out, big titties and an ass to match. Pray, take me, Lord, let me join the intercession, make me worthy. Sorry if there are children in the room um, for that last one. Um, and this is my last poem. Um, and I guess I'll dedicate it to you guys. Um, it references Baltimore. So, um, all right. Um, so this last poem is called Journey to the Unknown. Each of us has had our hair pressed and curled, or at least a fresh set of cornrows installed for our class trip to Baltimore. We are glad to get away from Philly for the day, to wave goodbye to our gravel schoolyard, our clothesline jump ropes sitting in the classroom closet. We throw on fearlessness like our dingy blouses. We don't wear it well. First stop the harbor where we gorge on fried fish, crab cakes, and Old Bay seasoned french fries. We listen to the sweet voices singing in the fudgery, trying to get us to spend the money we've saved for keychains and cheap jewelry. Next stop, the Great Blacks and Wax Museum. We tunnel through the dark cavern that is the slave ship, read quick lessons on the middle passage. Each body is so close. The layers of sweat dulls complexions at least two shades. That thick tang of unwashed bodies and shit must make breathing a kind of death. Down the stairs, we scan the newspaper reports, titter at the souvenirs from lynchings, a severed foot, a jar of eyes, an imperfectly cut-out vagina complete with pubic hair, 
A white man in overalls pulls the still live fetus from a woman's womb. She's dead, her lynched body burnt to a crisp. Her husband sways next to her, a hole in his pelvis. We are silent, slightly reverent, as if we are at mass, although we snicker at this uncomfortable nudity. Sex is still a myth to most of us. We ascend to the famous black figures of the civil rights movements, movement, faces frozen in history. In the gift shop, I finger the souvenirs, Addy books, postcards of the harbors, yachts, dock, little black rag dolls without eyes or mouths. Back on the bus, some of us lean against the windows, close our eyes, and sleep the two hours up I-95. That space between our bodies ensures our comfort. We can each breathe our own air. Thank you. Hello, can you hear me? All right. So I moved, um, I moved to DC a little bit over a year ago. So this is um, actually the first time that I've been to the Pratt Library and um, the first time that I've got a chance to look at the Lucille Clifton um, exhibit. So I'd like to begin with um, this poem that's entitled, My Name. Call me woman. Wade, get down, hold me up under the water. Bitch, bark, black skin, woman, daughter of church moan and miscegenation of drum and back beat. Jemima me, mammy me, yellow girl, nickel and sent me. No matriarch nor myth, rivered with the seed of hallelujah and holler. Say, call me woman, call me a good, good woman. Cookie Munster to First Lady Michelle Obama backstage after a taping of Sesame Street. You, a poem manifesting, connecting constellations between worlds, scripting, soul-shifting, sacredness lit up like moons. You, island traveler, leaving trails of Afro-aesthetics. You is a righteous sister. Eyebrows tinge of sepia, voice thick as the chords of Simone, pretty as Miss Piggy is fat. And together we should do some math. Together you and me, one plus one, we can flee and make cookies, cookies, cookies. Gingerbread, peanut butter, ice lemon, sugar, oatmeal raisin, and double chocolate chip. Can you tell me how to get, how to get to your street? Because your face within the space of any other is tight, meaning fine as your newly pressed hair. You woman, brown skinned woman, black girl, the alphabet of my religion from the south side of Chi Town. I am no man, only puppet, but I look at you have looked at you 
and keep falling into prayer. My first feminist lived on 131st Street in Kinsman in Cleveland. Sported big bangle hoop earrings, fly feathered dews with tails in back, and freshly pressed Sergio Valentes for picture day. Nobody tried to quiet their voice. No one could misinterpret head angled on a down slope, forefinger pointed up as a homegirl say, um, excuse you, you best be stepping off. Off the runways of the ghetto, they were the women I wanted to be with names like Lenita, Jarita, Chandra, and Monique. These corn roll fake Louis Vuitton, big booty wearing, grape blow pop smacking, kickball playing, wash cars on Saturday, black and proud, spitting out nigga pleases and show you rights like it ain't a thing. My name is Keisha, yeah. They call me Boo, yeah. I am a Leo, yeah. My man is Desi, yeah. Let's set it out. You were the women, could have been from anywhere, cute, cool, and conversating on classroom corners. As street lamps heat much jerry curl juice to the sounds of my Adidas. Defining yourselves with might on tongues in traditions of Davis, Giovanni, and Shanghai. You were the women, the women I wanted to be owning your world, double-dutching into tomorrow. These words stand on playgrounds in your memory. May your ears rock to their beat. Um, I'll never forget election day, um, the first time he won. I will never, I won't forget the second time either because I was like, woo, <laughs> woo, thank you. <laughs> no offense if there's any Romney supporters out there. <laughs> election day. I come from the land of I can. I am the bastard child of I can. Without a name, I listen to the women folk say, this is my home, what I say goes. And I listen to the men folk with their important talk, say, this is my home, my country, my land, and what I say goes. And I am fingers tinted with workday sun and red clay dirt sifted through the heels and hems of black folk. And I am a foreign tongue, engraved with lash and whip, my blood bright as bougainvillea. I am a woman and girl child, gifted to those whose skin makes of them a whole, not a fraction of a man. I come from the land of I can. I am ocean and river of West Africa and West Indies, of tobacco leaf and sugar cane, and I am sea creature and sediment, 
the sunken black body, the ocean floor. I am owned of house and field from Jack's son and John's son, and I am shuffle and sambo of Confederate flag and this United States of America flag. I am legba and lord, smell of mango skin and callaloo, of reservation and plantation. See, I am cool as the shade of the fullest oak tree, under which sways the names and bones of a people. I am a vote in Florida, unwanted and uncounted. I am a yes and a pair of syllables in the words we can. Song of shackle and segregation, whisper of a sign that reads four colors only. I am trace of waterline stitched to tree bark and gulf air in a place called New Orleans. In this year of 2008, I am stitched to everything, waiting, waiting, and waiting. The language of shedding skin. Teach that the alphabet begins with L. When asked where the ancestors are, say everywhere. Remember each ancestor is a hymn, each hymn a taut line of rope, a row in a cotton field, a path to the back of the bus, a razor's edge as it cuts. Before the ancestors, there was nothing. And before nothing, there was more nothing. Find a pen. Insert it with force inside the palm of your hand. Call it the word. Important as blood, that necessary color of pomegranate stain, hibiscus leaf, your mama's lipstick, a cherry lollipop, fire hydrant red. Then elect one of us to the highest office, two times. <laughs> Tell the press we have gone crazy with love and carry peace, chant peace, march peace of past and present, whisper the names. Audrey Lord, James Baldwin, Essex Hempel, Langston Hughes, Lucille Clifton, and Tazaki Shange, Sonia Sanchez, fill in the blanks. Remember, the alphabet always begins with love. L, swallow, regurgitate, spit out. Spell it, L, L-O, L-O-V, L-O-V-E. Say it with me, love. Whisper the names, Amiri Baraka, Zora Neale Hurston, Sapphire, listen, skin colored like stained glass, sound of rain on a tin roof, butterfly or bird perched on wire, never mistake these voices for winter, they are singing to wake the dead. Thank you. Thank you.
Um, as I mentioned, a couple people couldn't make it. I mentioned Brandon and um, another poet that was scheduled to be here uh, is Mahogany Brown, who's now the poetry program director and slam host slash curator at uh, the New Yorican Poets Cafe up in New York. Uh, she sends her regrets, but I'm sure she'll be back. I'll be talking to you, Judy. Um, and so um, she asked me to read one of her poems, and so this is Mahogany L. Brown. <clears throat> God's image. My mama live across the street from the mall now. She used to have a BMW, husband, owned her own house, had kids in, in the front room, and a crack habit that got too big to hide in a valley's cul-de-sac. She says she clean now. She says she top-heavy and in God's image. She say we blessed, though, we sure are blessed to be here, Coco's descendants and family. She say she live by the 99-cent store now. She say she need the Obama phone. She say, I live by the mall. Everything is around here. She say, I'm good with that. It's Mahogany Brown. Um, and um, now I uh, want to read a couple of poems of my own. Um, and it's only been... 12 years since my last book, so. Um, and this is the next one, which will be out in April, um, called Autogeography. And um, actually, in keeping with um, the last poem, um, let me, uh, I, I, I mentioned before that um, there isn't really a sort of like a house style or anything with Kavi Kanem, but I do notice that one of the things we do have is this relationship with the past, with history, whether it be um, our national history, international history, diaspora history, or personal history. And so in honor of that, this is a reunion. <clears throat> Basquiat's on the back steps with my niece, helping her to draw a picture of us all, tossing black gray dreadlocks as they fall into his eyes. My sister argues politics with Martin and Coretta in the backyard over ribs where Mayor Bearden's cooking. Malcolm puts his two cents in between bites of peas and rice. My grandfather flirts with Billy as they remember the old days on the avenue in West Baltimore. Prez brushes off his pork pie hat and stands, offers to get my grandmother something from the dessert table. She declines, full from her second helping of Duke Ellington's homemade apple pie. Essex and Joe Beam line up with Audrey and Pat Parker, while Asoto Sate, Melvin Dixon, and my partner critique from the picnic table off to one side. Shamefaced, my father shows up late, as always, with Charlie Parker and Bud Powell in tow. Where have you all been, my mother asks. She gets a kiss and sheepish grin, but no reply. Baltimore uproar by Romare Bearden, uh, which is a uh, mural that's in the Upton uh, Avenue Market station of the Metro here. For those of you who have ridden past it or never got out, take, take a look. It's really beautiful. Baltimore uproar. Get off here. This is a story you've been told. These streets before the trash, the rats, the crackheads nodding to ghost music that passed a distant gleam of notes, sound magicians dreaming, rising from these streets. 
diminutive personifications of the beat, rhythm made complex flesh. Flamboyant, fly-brimmed hipsters high on Heidi Ho, lexographers of jive, and our dark lady, transformed from turning tricks to trickster by the music through her songs. From the avenue to the after hours, you could hear it in the changes, the shift from working day to glittering night. Shattering twists of phrase calling out the turn of a gloved hand sheathed in silver from fingertip to elbow to hide the tracks beneath. Rising from the platform, the scent of gardenias is in the train's retreating roar, leaving departing commuters in spangled shards of sound. These multicolored stones are her petals, a frozen music always calling, calling back, urging on, rise up, get off here. Rise up. Um, as I mentioned, I have been in New York, actually in Brooklyn, uh, for about three years now. Um, fortunately, I'm not in the part of Brooklyn. There, there are certain parts of Brooklyn where you can't swing a cat without hitting a writer. Um, I'm not in one of those <laughs> forces, so so the pressure's off. I don't have to worry about running into, you know, Zadie Smith on the street, uh, which would be terrifying, actually. Um, but um, but in any case, it's very strange to be away and come back and then back and forth because you see things sort of like this is very familiar, but it's slightly changed, it's slightly different, and. Um, Everyone does have a double, at least one. So you always run into people who go, you know, you look just like this guy from Baltimore. Um, or you look like just like this guy from New York. So, Out of town. Everyone there reminds you of someone else. That woman in the hotel bars, the girl you sat next to in kindergarten. Those people across the street look like the couple with four bikes you helped outside Walmart last Christmas. The guy at the gas station always begging change is here transformed into a banker. The bus driver, your first disastrous blind date in school. Names gather at the tip of the tongue, refuse to go further. Even you, you no longer look like yourself here, but that other guy, that actor, singer, football player, the priest who married your friend's sister, the hoodlum everyone mistakes you for. Walking dusk's quiet, rolled-up streets, you peer into glowing houses at set-for-dinner tables, the backs of empty chairs, a flickering TV set at the end of a long hall, illuminated by long-held and lost desires, stared through the mirrored glass, searching for the life you could have led. Uh, I want to read this one, which I thought I had separated out. Please talk amongst yourselves. Um, as I find it, um, I don't think I have to say anything about this. My people turn the corner and there they are, loud and wrong, my grandmother says, her head already in mid-shake. Used to be a good neighborhood, too, my grandfather adds, gripping the steering wheel, unimpressed by these low-rent others moving in, blurring the red lines separating black from white, casting dark shadows on their west side dreams. Your people, no, your people, they, they bounce responsibility for the stoop sitters and boom boxes, chitlins, bright polyester and afro sheen back and forth between them. 
their words flying over me, looking out from the back seat at my face in the mirrored glass. And the last thing that I want to read before we bring up our final readers is um, this travel journal. Memory of your heartbeat pulsing in my hand, all the windows open. Dawn. The clocks here all faced east, time measured out in backward-moving spoons, empty as an unmade bed. Your photographs haunt the shifting room, thin substitute for for absent arms, three zeros on the door. Lifeboat for a shipwrecked heart, phone lines taught between us, only sound your voice. Noon, the postcard lies face front, glittering skyline, clear waters, the perfect day. Reversed, empty words, quickly tossed, good time, lovely, don't worry. Truth, a knife edge between word and image, slicing skin, paper thin with longing. Wore your undershirt, green apples drifted through my clothes all day, then went out to a bar. The only guy who looked at me looked like you. I think that means come home. Sunset behind the mountain, golden crown on bed of coffee beans. Night. And now, if we could. Thank you. Um, Our last two fellows, Bettina Judd and Katima Lee. How y'all doing? So you say that life hasn't begun. Well, there's something I know gets it started. If you like it or not, the beast of Saturn return. Daddy is a scorpion, lives three houses down from the end of the street, drinks a death cocktail for breakfast, leaves his daughters in debt and waiting. He's so far away, what you call absentee. Death cocktail for breakfast, say, everything gotta go sometime, so he keeps it close. You say... That life hasn't begun Well, there's something I know Gets it started If you like it or not The beast of Saturn return This is a bop for Nicki Minaj I learn by watching the way a girl lands when she is thrown from a hundred-story building. Queens with no territory, wars with no blood, no booty, no sovereign to fight for. In this very moment, I'm king. In this very moment, I slay Goliath with the sling. I make the building, this time make it taller. Got wings and an entourage, makeup deals and latex. This time, I got itches on my arm, USDA certified. This time, I brand the idea of brand. 
get an ass like ambition in this very moment i'm king in this very moment i slay goliath with the sling i become the fantasy of fantasy castles fairy godmothers lubitons and such lace and crystals everything porcelain and breakable i a black girl who is breakable look look a black girl breakable finally pretty a pretty black girl flying no she's flailing no in this very moment i'm king in this very moment i slay goliath with the sling so um i have i've been working on a. I was asked by my pastor to write a poem on one of the Stations of the Cross, bring it back to Catholic, but I'm not Catholic, I'm Baptist. Um, <laughs> I'm going to heaven. Um, so, um, of course, tell me to write one poem, I write all of the stations. And so, um, station five is when Jesus meets um, Solomon, what, Samuel? The, the black one, the black guy. He meets the black guy. <laughs> right, that's that's how I was taught it in 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 Christian school. Like, he, see, he met one black guy, and he's the one who carried the cross for him. Right. Number five, C. We all look alike, considering this matter of guilt, a crown, a shoulder, a back black buddy back on a blood back self meet your brother brother meet yourself um the 11th station is when jesus is crucified this is called tendons one knock knock forgiving father not even i known what this is all of the time how could we flesh so vibrant two knock knock paradise has no need for a thief nor a savior three knock knock woman behold son behold mother behold spirit behold knock four eli eli if I sing, Eli, Eli, an ancient song, Eli, Eli, will you take Lama, me home, Sabachthani? Five, nothing can be washed away, nothing quenched with wine. Six, everything is, no thing is here. Seven, home, oh, 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 home home um i have another series of poems i've been i've been hustling them for some years i haven't let them go so you know um about three women um well really four women anarcha betsy and lucy who were the um 
guinea pigs that the father of gynecology, J. Marion Sims, um, practiced on in Alabama, um, invented the modern speculum on, and of course they were enslaved women. Um, and Joyce Heth, the man, the woman who um, P.T. Barnum of Barnum and Bailey Circus kind of began his career on, um, said that she was 161 years old, and you know that was kind of a sideshow, and that that began the the sideshow freak thing that he is famous for. Um, so this is Betsy invents the speculum, Montgomery, Alabama, fall of 1845. And this is an excerpt from J. Marion Sims' autobiography. Introducing the bent handle of the spoon, I saw everything as no man had ever seen before. I have bent in other ways to open the body, create space. More pliable than pewter, my skin may be less giving. Great discoveries are made on cushioned lessons and hard falls. Sims invents the speculum. I invent the wincing, the if you must of it, the looking away, the here of discovery. And the last poem, um, this is the inauguration of experiments. <coughs> December 1845. Lucy didn't scream like most, though sometimes she would moan deep, long, and overdue. I'd wake thinking death, it's Lucy, knees curled under, head face down, her body trying to move out of itself. Anarcha and I take turns wiping her head with cool rags, warming her feet with our hands. Sing to her. She would join in a voice so low it wasn't like she was singing at all, but whispering a prayer, one that rolled on long after we finished. Doctor spent a long, a lot of time with Lucy. He would stand at the foot of her bed looking, not mad, just like he had a whole lot of questions and wanted answers from her. I had questions too, so I looked to Anarcha. She thought a long time. Finally, she said, she too sick to die, and we too well to be living. Thank you. Please excuse me, I'm a bit under the weather, so I'm a little, um, a little fatigued, but hopefully I'll get through it okay. Uh, about three years ago, I was accepted into Cave Canem, and it's been a life-changing experience since then. It's a wonderful experience and I encourage everyone, you know, who has the opportunity to apply to do so. Uh, I'm going to start with a poem that was inspired by my love of movies and psychology. I was a psychology major and of course I love movies so this first poem is inspired by that. In Utero, a Hitchcock Retrospective. 
Hysterically these days, I dream of hysterectomies and Freud's hysterical hysteria. Every dream makes my womb ache. Is this what aging feels like? In most dreams, I'm sitting on Freud's couch. His spectacles reflect images of Hitchcock scenes. Janet Lee watches a uterus in her rearview mirror. Her white 57 sedan hurries down a dusty highway. The pulpy mass passes by. Soon she loses sight, fade to black. Perry Mason, not Lars, blinks from flashbulbs, and Lisa tosses decaying ovaries to slow the villain down. She had to get rid of them because they were slowing her down. Yes, my hysteria conjures up memories of movies with blonde damsels in distress distressing on dying checkered floors or looking up sinister wooden stairs to see their hetero hero trapped in utero at the top. No birds in these dreams, no bodega bay, just crop dusting uteri dropping down, fallopian tubes extended like wings. Yes, sometimes the dreams are beautiful, but most times it's splintered, fading wormholed antiques and dark rooms. In Norman's words of wisdom, we all go a little mad sometimes. Always in the end, I am, you are, we are, an illusion, a shell, an old woman in a dim, musty room, rocking in a chair. The next two poems are dedicated to families who have lived with someone suffering from addiction. Elegy for my sister. In the park, a red bird, caged in dead branches, sits still, almost frozen and closed in a space of nature's creation. The elements welcome it by melting the snow, slowing wind, raising the sun just enough to warm its wings. Below it on the ground, crocuses blossom, some with a strong purplish hue. The creek nearby claps quietly against the rocks, and all feels right in the world, right. But somewhere deep in the district, my sister haunts hallways and vacant lots, never taking flight. Sand, cement, and abandoned cars, her perch, she sleeps in high-rise catacombs, hollow spaces layered in rust. Cold, dark places welcome her and others, searching for atonement, apparitions to their families now. Many are forgotten, never mourned, just bones, then dust, talents never known. My sister was an artist. She'd sketch every new face she'd see, shaping eyes, shading noses. That's how I remember her now. Full tablets with charcoal images, paints, and faint memories of what it was like to have an older sister. I never could understand addiction. Nothing ever held me like that. I wish I had a cage of branches to put her in. So growing up, I sp split my time, I guess, between two places, Washington, D.C., and New Jersey. And I used to live across... Um, across the bridge from uh, Philadelphia in Camden, New Jersey. So this next poem is about that. Market. When I was 10, maybe 11, my mother would take my sisters and me to Market Street in Philadelphia. 
Every two weeks, we would trek over the blue Brent Franklin Bridge in her white 73 Oldsmobile to buy fresh fruits, meats, and vegetables. The outside market was in a cul-de-sac sandwiched between some steel and glass mountains on asphalt lakes. There were smells of old cheese, boiled sausages, and onions. We would buy many pounds of red delicious, navel oranges, heads of cabbage, bunches of kale and collard. Many of the salespeople were of different races. An Asian, an Asian man selling whiting and cod. A woman with a thick Italian accent selling timbalo di fusilli. And there were crowds of people just like my, fit, my family buying food for their homes. We would spend hours there. My mother checking the ripeness of bananas and melons. Me watching the faces of strangers walking, talking, passing by. My sisters, too young to care, would play with each other, ducking under wooden tables. After shopping, we would share a hoagie in the car on the way home. This was when we felt like a family. Before my mother remarried and our home became a haven for Monday night Bible studies and my, father's alcohol, my stepfather's alcoholic, alcoholic rages, before my older sister ran away. This was when the refrigerator was always full. And the last two poems are dedicated to many of the forgotten veterans. If VAs were magical places. His nurse tells me, tells her that her father had a tough time of things. He's refusing treatment, knocking down trays, has threatened to leave while his heartbeat beats as rapid as rapid fire. This open mouth snoring slight of a man who is now a rough idea of what he once was. She apologizes for her father. She tells the nurse her father's a difficult man. The nurse nods. He knows men like her father, men who were once griffins guarding home. The nurse tells her she, can't, she can wake her father, but she doesn't. She sits in the chair near the window, listens to the music of monitor, the rhythm of snore, thinks about checking his mail, feeding his dog, cleaning his sanctum, his tomb. When, she wake, when he wakes, he says he hopes to get a, ho a hug someday. She smiles and talks about necessary things. When she leaves his room, holding his keys so tight they imprint on her hand, she thinks about his shoulder blades, exposed bone where wings used to be. And the last poem, Bus Stop Chat Outside the VA. His dog died, a black lab, fur a silken wool, his child of choice. He will bury her in his yard next to a dying oak. Leafless ashen branches, grain trunk he refuses to cut. He says it has not hit him, his loss, the cost of losing, the dark familiar figure on his bathroom floor. He will bury her deep enough. He won't disturb the soil too much. The grass no longer grows, but he still, he still tries. He talks about his latest illness, his young doctor at the VA, the drugs they want to force he keeps refusing. He reads a crumbling medical report, Germanic and Latinate words, bilaterally palpable, cytoplasmic. They will try to fix him, but not his teeth. 
He called his daughter recently. He says a daughter should be loyal. She should understand he collects suicide stories like he collects guns. He likes to show them off sometimes. She should ignore his tone. She should not talk about the past, the time elapsing between calls, the times he called to talk about his dog, the times he called to say he would be leaving. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, before I bring up our faculty member and uh, guest poet Kwame Dawes, I want to uh, mention that. Excuse me. The um, uh, Maryland, uh, the, the uh, City Historical Society is now collecting the work of Baltimore poets. So if you are a poet uh, that or, play, or playwright that is writing and publishing in the city of Baltimore, they are looking to create an archive. And Rosalind Hyde is here, and she has some flyers and information about that. So, Sure. Um, so because we do have an incredible um, history here, actually, it's very, this is a very fecund place for verse. And you read a bop. I just wanted to, I'm uh, sorry, not Bettina, um, read a bop, and I just wanted to say what a bop is, what you heard. Um, a bop is a form that was created by former steel worker and great poet Afal Michael Weaver from Baltimore, and it introduces, as you heard, music, uh, lyrics in addition to poems. So we are creating our own forms, and that form is created at Comic Con, actually. I, and I was there. I say, I'm so old, I could say, I was there, you know. Um, Sadly, I was not there when Kwame Dawes was, which is my shame, not his. Um, I have no idea how Kwame Dawes does all that he does. Um, in addition to uh, 16 books of poetry, you're making me look bad. Uh, uh, the rest of us look bad. We're all slackers compared to you. Uh, books of fiction, nonfiction, criticism, drama, um, the editor of Prairie Schooner, that amazing journal, out of the University of Nebraska. Um, and I think that the thing, um, uh, sorry, the, the editor, Perry Schooner, um, Chancellor of, uh, Professor, Chancellor Professor of English at Nebraska. And I'm really rushing to get to the thing that I really love, which is the fact that when the Olympics were in London, uh, Mr. Dawes was asked to write poems in response to the Olympics, um, particularly the Jamaican team, um, who of course, are the fastest people in the world. Uh, so congratulations. Um, and um, as, as someone who finds it difficult enough to write, to be able to, to actually write sort of on spec, okay, well, there's the Olympics, this event has happened, now go write a poem. I don't know how you did it, but you did, and it was, they were all wonderful. And the new, in the uh, Wall Street Journal, correct, yes. So um, He also is an Emmy uh, winner. And has done a, a lot of fantastic work, both as a documentary and online, on uh, the issue of HIV-AIDS in Haiti. And I thank you for that as well. Um, the amazing, the wonderful Kwame Dawes. Welcome to Baltimore. Uh, thanks, Reggie, and uh, thank you for having me here. This is good. 
Um, and it's great to be reading with Cave Canon folk. Um, we are not a, I think we are a cult, Cave Canon. It's, <laughs> it's a good kind of cult, though. I'm, I'm actually doing the stopwatch thing, so I, I don't go over. Um, but but it, it, like I say, it is, it is, it is very good to be here. I, I'm going to read a couple of quick things um, to contextualize this reading. Um, and not say much else, but what I read here, just as my contextualizing. This is an essay by Ilya Kaminsky um, introducing um, Christian Wyman's uh, translation of Osip Mendelstam's work, a Russian poet. Um, and Ilya makes this observation. He says, most 20th century Russian readers would have argued that the poet, any poet, does have a moral responsibility to his or her people. In that country, as the saying goes, a poet is a great deal more than just a poet. In pre-fifth century Greece, quotation, the Greeks always felt that a poet was in the was in the broadest and deepest sense the educator of his people, that the poet was still the undisputed leader of his people. Many a Russian poet shared this feeling during the first 20 years of the 20th century. I'm, I'm kind of glad that people don't think that way now. Um, <laughs> however, I take the role myself seriously. I don't expect people to think that of the poet, but I have to think, I come to the page uh, with that sense of seriousness and responsibility, and I believe it's important. But I also say that to poo-poo the notion that poets should not write about things that are important, that may be political, that may have social impetus and value. And I think poets should think, should do the work of thinking, so that their place, when I was in Colombia, for instance, they would be talking about um, Colombia, not South Carolina, but Colombia in, in, in South America. They, they, they would ask poets questions about the cartels, about global warming, and so on. They expected the poets to know what they were talking about. Um, and I think sometimes poets run away from that idea that you have to think and come up with something sensible about something. And um, so I take that seriously. I, and then I want to start with a poem by um, Natasha Threatherway from her book Thrall, which is a, um, I think it's a wonderful book. And I would admit that when, when I started reading it, I didn't expect to be so blown away by it. I admired Natasha a great deal, and I think her work, her earlier work is fantastic. But there's a crowding that happens when all these awards and accolades, and it's hard for a poet to really settle and make good poems. And yet, this is probably one of her best books. Uh, this is a poem called Elegy, and I'm going to struggle a bit because of the lighting, but I will, I will get through it because I think it's worth, worth reading it. And it's just worth it for the, the, what I think is the genius of her craft as a, as, a, as a lyrical poet. It's called Elegy for My Father. I think by now the river must be thick with salmon. Late August, I imagine it as it was that morning, drizzle needling the surface, mist at the banks like a net settling around us, everything damp and shining. That morning, awkward and heavy, in our hip waders, we stalked into the current and found our places. 
you upstream a few yards and out far deeper. You must remember how the river steeped in over your boots and you grew heavier with their defeat. All day I kept turning to watch you, how first you minded, you mimed our guides casting, then cast your invisible line slicing the sky between us and later rod in hand now, how you tried again and again to find the perfect arc, flight of an insect skimming the river's surface. Perhaps you recall I cast my line and reeled in two small trout we would not keep because I had to release them, I confess, I thought about the past, working the hooks loose, the fish writhing in my hands, each one slipping away before I could let go. I can tell you now that I tried to take it all in, record it for an elegy I would write one day, when the time came. Your daughter, I was that ruthless. What does it matter if I tell you I learned to be? You kept casting your line, and when it did not come back empty, it was tangled. When it when it did not come back empty, it was tangled with mine. Some nights dreaming, I step again into the small boat that carried us out, and watch the bank receding, my back to where I know we are headed. It's a beautiful and wonderful but so carefully crafted poem. So now I'll read some of my own work. Um, I'm reading from a collection called Wheels, um, which fortunately is here, so if you want to get a copy of it, you should. Um, and if you don't want to get a copy of it, you should. Um, <laughs> uh, but So Wheels is in several movements, and I'm going to try and read um, a couple of poems from each of the movements um, in Wheels. Uh, this is this is uh, the the opening section of the book, and here's a poem called "Our Colossal Father Again," and this is sort of indirectly dedicated to George W. Bush, the the last the last Bush. Sub heavy world, sub as you spin, W. H. Auden. One. The portrait painter's art works like faith that turns the wafer, the decanter of wine, into something else. A dragon swaggers through the portal of our century, striding into a gothic sky. Two. In another country, olive groves and gleaming mosques are pulverized to dust. Outside the wide courtyards, bloody streets fade after sudden explosions. Three. He is a throwback to grand lawgivers who stretch their arms over the world. We will remember him for his Augustinian self-denial, the last beer he drank, and his mealy-mouthed sermons. Four, his prophets pour oil that rises in flood across the marbled floor. Better a good name than, a co than costly oil, the day of death than the day of birth. In the faint light of dusk, he seems to be walking on water. <clears throat> and this piece is called Rituals Before the Poem. 
Many of these poems are influenced by the book of Ezekiel, and this is a quote from the book of Ezekiel. In terror they will drink water grudgingly. Ezekiel chapter 4. Before the poem comes like a word from a brazen sky, the poet must lie on his side for a year, eating only dry bread and measured bowls of water. The poet must pour sand over grass and build the walls of his city. The poet must surround the walls with the offense of guns and for days upon days starve the city of all its music. The poet's tongue must grow heavy and his limbs will be bound with cords so he cannot move. He will quarrel with God about the meaning of poetry. The poet will beg for mercy, lying on his other side for a hundred and ninety days, his body scarred with wounds he inflicts on his family. All this a poet must do before a poem so that when he walks out in midwinter his face will be smooth his eyes will have the quiet resignation we call peace and his satchel will be full of whimsical lyrics about the color green and the sound a whore makes in her dreams uh, this poem is from a sequence of south carolina poems uh, based on the art um, of a, a remarkable um, South Carolinian landscape artist. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about him later, if I remember. Um, and this poem is called How to Pick a Hanging Tree. It's also an experience I had visiting one of the old plantations, which have been turned into great places to have weddings and, um, and museums, kind of. When I was, I was at one of them, and... Um, I, I noticed in old charts that they had that there were these slave cottages, but they were not part of the tour. Uh, so I kept sort of saying, um, so when, when do we get to go to the slave cottages? And they said, well, that's not really part of the tour. And I said, well, well how come? And I was disrupting the tour. So, so, they, so they, they had an, uh, one of the managers come to talk to me, and then she took me on a tour of the slave cottages alone, which was all right. So anyway. And on, on that tour, she pointed to a tree, and she said this was known as the hanging tree. So the poem is called How to Pick a Hanging Tree. Pastoral scene of the gallant south, the bulging eyes and the twisted mouth, scent of magnolias sweet and fresh, when the sudden smell of burning flesh. Lewis Allen. Young trees may look sturdy, but they have no memory they are green so near the surface they bend with the sudden weight. And the truth is that not all trees can carry a man's dead weight with enough air between pointed toes and earth, with enough height so the scent of rotten can carry far enough to be a message for those who are sniffing the muggy air for news. Old as it may look, Craggy bark, twisted branches, drooping limbs, old as it may seem, sitting there by the edge of the canal, that live oak understands the simple rituals of hanging. See, there is the natural notch where the rope will slip and hold, and here, angled like this, the damp air off the river carries the decay for miles and miles. Sometimes a fresh tree will simply die after the piss of a dying man seeps into its roots. Sometimes a tree will start to rot from guilt or something like a curse. But the old trees, seasoned by the flame of summer lightning and hardened to tears, know it is nothing to be a tree, mute and heartless 
just strong enough to carry a man until he turns into air. Um, I, spe- I, I was in Ethiopia some years ago doing some work for, uh, you know, with the BBC on Haile Selassie. And I don't know how much you know about um, Selassie and Rastafarianism. Uh, I remember when I interviewed the daughter of Haile, the granddaughter of Haile Selassie, and she said she's grateful for the Rastas for two reasons. One is when they needed to flee in Ethiopia and Addis um, in the 70s, um, it was Bob Marley who, who put the money together to get them to come out. He, he, he gave them the money to come out. So she said she remembers that. But she also said something interesting. She said that the, in terms of international imagination and in the public imagination, Selassie's name has continued um, because of the belief of Rastafarians. Uh, she said, admittedly, she said, in the rest of the world, if there was no Rastas, Selassie would just be another dictator who lost power, and that would be the end of that. And she said she was grateful for that because of the work he did. Um, I met a man called Solomon Ephraim Woods, who was an old Jamaican in, in Ethiopia in a place called Sheshemani, which is an area that uh, the, the Ethiopian emperor had identified and, and, and set out for, for diaspora Africans who wanted to return to Africa. And Solomon and his family and other people had settled there. They were Jamaicans who had settled there. Um, and I was interviewing Solomon, and at one point I asked him a question that I probably should not have asked him. Um, and so this is a poem about that conversation. Son, who is that? Is the African postman daddy? Burning spear. East from Addis Ababa, then south deep into the rift valley, I can hear the horns trumpeting over the flat-roofed acacia trees. See African women bend low with wood heavy on their backs and the cows, goats, donkeys, mules, sheep, and horses snapped into obedient herds by sprinting children move along the roadside. Life happens here. I'm traveling to the land I have heard about, Sheshemani, the green place, 500 acres of jazz benevolence, and I know now that I long to hear the rootsman tell me how, despite the rumors of his passing, the natty dread keeps on riding, keeps on standing in the fields of praise to hold on to the faith of roots people. Brother Solomon, you put the name Ephraim on your head and carry the face of the true Rasta, the face of an Ashanti warrior, eyes deep under heavy lids, and your skin tight as leather, blacker than black. I have met you before on the streets of Kingston, there where you trod to the hiss and slander of the heathen, you natty dread gathering the people's broken minds into your calabash. You carry it all, tell them, return to the roots, the healing shall take place. You are burning spears, voice in the fields of Teph. You tell me of the prophecy of Marcus, and I listen to you through the phlegm, through the gruff of your voice. Then suddenly, when I ask about the passing of the emperor, you rise up like a staff of correction, your voice reaching back to the mountains, your warrior self, your yardman greatness, and you speak a mystery to those who have ears but won't hear, who have eyes and won't see. And I know that this dread will one day stand in this soil and find his feet grow 
growing roots that soon the earth will be darker for the arrival of Solomon. Let the heathen rage, let the doubters scoff, let this Ghanaian youth whose eyes have seen the face of Jesus Christ, let him too sit and marvel at the faith of the Nati. For this African postman has forsaken mother and father and has come to stand before his imperial majesty to call only him father so that the father might call him son and the world will carry on its weary march and the ibises will swoop in the Ethiopian dusk and the smoke will rise from wood fires and the night will come with news that the rootsman after 400 years of being told he is homeless has come home yes ja has come home sons and daughters of his imperial majesty highly selassie earth rightful ruler without any apology say this is the time when i and i and i should come home yes ja O come a hold the foe. Na lay go. Na lay go. Na lay go. Reach. I come in search of diadem and scepter. I come in search of doddering old man. I come in search of the glory of warrior kings. I come in search of the burden of patronage. I come in search of the glory of warrior kings. I come in search of the eyes that burned. I come in search of the body in the latrine. I arrive in the city that has expunged a hero, gone to seed. Perhaps he stayed too long, or perhaps he has not gone, not quite yet. I come in search of the conquering lion. I come in search of the hubris of empire. I come in search of the ancient faithful. I come in search of the blasphemy of Rasta. I hold in me dusty questioning, seeking out the whispers and the scoffers. It is raining in Addis. The air is thin. And I know only that these faces, these beautiful faces, are the faces of those uncertain of majesty. When man is God and God is man, myth and magic walk hand in hand with blood and madness and decay. In this land, it's impossible to hear the voice of God in the voice of the dead. Um, As Reggie mentioned, I've done some work in Haiti on HIV AIDS. I did some work there in Jamaica as well. Um, And after the earthquake in in Haiti, I visited um, uh, um, Port-au-Prince, maybe five times, spent about a week and a half each time over a space of about eight months. And um, I interviewed people, met with people to write about HIV AIDS in that, in that, in that country, that island. Um, and so some of these poems emerge out of that experience. Uh, this is a weird and strange poem called The Visitor. Um, and I can't explain it, so I'll just read the poem. But it's, it's, it's about Haiti, and it may be about a lot of things. Uh, the Visitor for Peter, Spears, Peter Sears. He came the night of the 2006 World Cup finals, rubbing his forehead and giggling. Those Algerians, he said. His French was impeccable, though when the last whistle blew, he cursed like a fisherman from Capetien. The demon sat in the backyard on the broken desk we had been using for kindling when the gas was out. He told me my yard was too small. 
People, he said, could see him from the street, so I built a fence with some rusted zinc sheets I found in the abandoned construction site where the Americans had begun a garment factory before they gave up and fled because of the blood in the lanes. The demon liked the fence, which was good, but he ate too much. He ate everything I had, and if he hated my food, which sometimes he did, he would vomit it out right there in the yard and demand water and mints and another meal. I knew enough to give him what he wanted. He was not a pleasant man and not quite what I expected. He hated sex for one and felt that parties and dances were a waste of time. All he did was gossip, and he knew everything evil and twisted about everyone who walked by. I was startled, for he knew things about the most innocent of women that I had known, not known. And though I feigned indifference as he talked, he knew I relished his gossip, especially because of the detail of what he knew. Not so much what people said in the open, but things they thought, and he traded in filth. So much of it. So much of it. He sulked a lot. At night, he stood and shook his wings. Dusting off, he said, which was another insult about my yard. But I sat with the demon most evenings just to hear him talk. And maybe I knew that if he spoke to me, he would have no one else to tell my secret thoughts to. And I knew he knew my thoughts, even though I tried hard to be so pure in my dreams day and night. So I took comfort in the way he let me sit and talk with him, since he knew that I was lonely and sometimes pathetic. And that did not bother him. And he never said anything about that side of me, though he could have. Everyone had gone. My lover took his machete and all his clothes and left. When I had offered him half the plates and cups and knives and forks and spoons, he spat and walked away. He did not even have the courtesy to say no thanks. I told the demon about this and he said, what do you do? Because he knew and maybe he felt it was my fault and that is what we say when we don't want to say things that might hurt people. He did not seem to mind my crying. Maybe he did not care. But when you have lived what I have lived, that is like caring, really. We would sit under the mango tree all day and the trees stopped bearing fruit, even though all the trees in the neighborhood had the biggest crop I had ever seen and the whole street smelled sweet with rotten fruit and worms. One day I ran out of food and the demon said he was tired of this and he left just like that. He picked up his stuff, walked across the dust yard, through the gap in the fence, and was gone. The next day it was cooler than usual, and then the earth shook, and my fence fell flat on the ground. And when you looked, the broken house was like an island on a metal blue sea, tinted with blood. I'll read two more poems, and um, that'll be it. <laughs> Um, this is a poem for the women of Haiti called Mother of Mothers. Um, what I found in Haiti was that the people who carried the bulk of the responsibility and the burden of dealing with HIV were the women. Uh, they were the ones who would be tested when they were pregnant, and therefore they would know first, and they would be the ones to have to break the news to their husbands or their partners. Um, and then they seemed to be the ones who would have to be the caretakers of those who are sick as well. So anyway, this is a poem called Mother of Mothers. 
When a brave woman's out walking, she's mistress life's spitting image. Michelle Ange Hippolyte. The faces of mothers of mothers. Their cheekbones gleam against taut skin. Their eyes glaze with the scarring of so much loss. In Haiti, the mothers of mothers have lamented for so long. All that is left is the sturdy presence of grace. The wide open heart of knowing how much a casket weighs, how it feels on the open palm. The mothers of mothers march through the congregation while the children of men clap their hands, beat tambourines, scratch the greater, and sing the flat harmony that shivers the air. Beneath a cascade of flame yellow and red flamboyant, she stalks the outskirts of the feet-worn worship ground, the outer limits of the congregation where the weeds and stones have accumulated, where the excavation of rubble takes us as far as weary arms and the creaky wheelbarrow can go. These women draw a pattern of circles with their heavy planted feet, their arms raised high, their voices continuing with greater ceremony on occasion, the conversation that began with Jesus at four o'clock in the morning. O oh, the mothers of mothers who know too well the hottest sorrow, the broken bodies of children, the boy who covers a jaw full of maggots, and the lanky son whose spine gave under the weight of concrete before he was pulled out, laid under the soft blue light of a wayside clinic waiting to go and quietly, with the flies returning to his skin. He is still, though he must wait there until dusk before they notice, before a procession of mothers leads the body out into the night, and mother of mothers, she hears her child wake, look around and speak. How nice the air is out here, before he dies this time for good. Mothers of mothers, in your bandana and with your holy testament, you must draw the line of defense around the beleaguered souls and speak a torrent of curses on the beast lurking in the shadows. Last poem I'll read is a little shorter, and it's a poem for, um, for Lorna, my wife, who is here, which is good, and uh, for my family, my kids, and so on. This is a poem that is maybe six years old, I suppose, uh, because it's called Upon Our 14th Anniversary, so I can work the math. Um, so it's an, it's an anniversary poem, but it's also about Kingston and about family. We drive through the irregular curves and dips of Kingston's suburbs, deep craters, cluttered gullies, cutting through roads. Adjua's tiny car is a shelter of laughter and the making of nostalgia. We know people die on those streets all the time, but tonight we are able to forget. We spend 30 minutes making nonsense of the rituals of violence, and for a day we recall the paths of our love, the brick porch where I sang songs into the night, the hall spine I walked up to to see you in the powder blue frock, your smile, the first hit of a chronic addiction I still tremble for all these years. Sometimes home is a poem of lament, but tonight we see Kingston as a freshly painted world of chaos, a kind of giddy playground, so that after the steam snapper and gummy bummy, the coconut water and guava pineapple juice at the fish place on the decent end of Constant Spring Road, 
Arduous car is filled with our children, so loud with playground laughter and the sweetness of children teetering on the edge of rudeness, singing Julio Iglesias and Simon and Garfunkel. We marvel at Kekeli's deep baritone, him just barely 11, holding on to each note curved as, anchors, as he anchors Paul Simon's thin voice until we arrive safely, feeling groovy at West Road. We sit in the dark until the last guitar strum, and our voices have settled into the hum of joy. And I understand again why I love you, why I love us. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you once again, Kwame Das. That was magnificent. Thank you, um, thank you, Raina. Thank you, Nikki. Thank you, Bettina. Thank you, Katima. Thank you, Judy, and the Pratt Library. And thank all of you very much for coming. We do have uh, some books in the back for sale. Um, please stay, chat, talk with our uh, with our poets. And thank you all very much for coming. Thank you, Kavi Khanum.